I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hello, I'm Gary Mansfield, and welcome to the Mizog Art Podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 7 of the Mizog Art Podcast. This week I'll be taking you into the studio of Mr Simon Callery, which coincidentally is next door to Alexis Ardin, who is also a confirmed artist for the Mizog Art Podcast. Simon was another one of those artists who was, uh, who was kind enough to write to me when I was in prison studying art. And me reaching out to Simon to ask if he'd be a part of the Mizog Art podcast was the first time we'd had any contact with each other since probably the mid-90s. So it was good for both of us to put a face to the name and sort of say hello after all these years, and for me to say thank you. If you don't know Simon's work, he makes very intriguing, almost sculptural paintings. Well, it's pointless me going into any more detail about his work because that's pretty much the first question that I asked him. And you'll be pleased to know that the sound quality is ideal in this podcast. There was no background noise or technical hiccups, which makes a change. Which is quite different from the podcast I recorded this Thursday in Hoxton Square with Heath Kane, which was a beautiful afternoon. And just as we started recording, the world and his dog decided to come out and have their lunch in the square. But... Like the others, that does not detract from the quality of the podcast. I've been thinking, if you listen to this podcast, then obviously by default you're into art and into podcasts. So I figured each week, if I remember, 
I'll mention um, a couple of podcasts that I listen to. The first is going to have to be Ben Talon's Arrest All Mimics. I first became aware of Ben's podcast when I was in Ray Richardson's studio and we was talking about podcasts and Ray mentioned that he'd been featured on one a few months previous and said that Ben Talon was in the same block of studios which is in the Thameside studios over in Woolwich. Uh, so I had to listen to the podcast that Ray was featured on. I hit Ben up on social media, told him that I'd enjoyed the podcast and asked whether I could be featured on one. And it just so happened on the very last day, within the last couple of hours of Ben leaving his studio in London and moving back up to Manchester, he recorded one with me. Being an, an illustrator, um, Ben's guests are generally illustrators. Being in the Thameside studio, having such a pool of artists around him, he interviewed a few artists as well. So the show info on Ben Talon's Arrest All Mimics is as follows. The Creative Innovation Podcast. Arrest All Mimics is a creative industry insight show hosted by illustrator, author and art director Ben Talon. We bring you the inside story from the most exciting people and projects across the creative industries. So when you're able, go over to Arrest All Mimics and have a listen. And Ray Richardson is number 13, and I am number 99. But back to this week, let me invite you into the studio of Simon Callery. I'm here with Simon Callery in his Perfleet studio, a studio that is a lot bigger than those you'd find in London, that's for sure. Hello, Simon. Hello, Gary. If I go straight into the questions, and the first one being, how would you explain what you do? to someone that doesn't know your work? Well, that's always one of the big problems, actually, for lots of artists. If you make things that challenge what a conception of art is, it's always really difficult to explain what it is. So, I mean, I'm a painter, and uh, I'm interested in pushing the idea of what a painting is. So I don't make traditional paintings I don't make pictures uh, I don't really work with images but I work with all the materials of painting and I am very concerned about the painting being an experience and when I say experience I don't just mean what it looks like I'm not talking about just the visual side I'm talking about how we understand something physically so with our other senses apart from just the eye so when I get asked what kind of painting do I make, I always have to try to make it clear that painting is not always just about what you see. Yeah. It can also be about what you feel. Because there's no... If anyone was to see your artwork, they wouldn't think... They would think it was a sculpture using canvas rather than a yeah. painting that is shown in a sculptural sense. Yeah. Well, they that, sort of meet in the middle, don't they? What I've thought about is how painting can develop itself and push at its limitations. And, of course, I've looked at everything to try to figure that out. Landscape, art, you know, of all forms, all different periods, architecture. I mean, look at everything for clues. Uh, one of the things that I want the painting to do is to have some other things that I find in, for instance, sculpture. Yeah. So the idea of moving around something is 
really interesting for me in terms of getting someone to be active in front of a painting. So you move from side to side and you might look through it, you might look up into it. But what it does is it hopefully encourages you to move as you do around sculpture. But the context of the work, the context of it is painting. Well, if the... You don't put your pigment onto the canvas. You pretty much put your pigment into the canvas, don't you? Absolutely. And I've, I've seen you using it. You do put it on with a sponge, yep. large brushes, yep. very fluid. More, And it is more or less dyeing it on the floor, isn't it? Well, I think dyeing is kind of like a chemical process. So clothed... Well, no, clothed I'm sorry. Dyeing. I mean, as if, if someone was watching you do it, they would associate it with the nearest thing they could... Um, yeah. Would, would be someone dying a cloth. Yeah, because what I'm trying to do is to think about how you can, even in terms of the way you put the paint on, that it has a real impact in terms of physicality. Yeah. So what I do is I soak uh, the pigment when it's... I make it with this big uh, mixture. It's very hot. It's rabbit skin glue, which is traditional yeah. size for canvas. Uh, for painting I don't <clears throat> use it in a traditional way I use it as the medium of the paint instead of a surface that lies underneath the paint yeah. and I wash my canvases so that they are very soft and cotton it's raw and cotton more absorbent with that it makes it much more absorbent and then I, with, with when the rabbit skin glue is really hot and I've got a big pot I put the canvas on the floor so it just sucks in and with a sponge I just you know completely soak the canvas so it's not really dyeing it's more funny way to get the pigment absorbed into the fabric into the fiber yeah into the, and caught in the fibers rather than the tradition which is you separate the paint from the canvas with a layer of size and the paint lies on the top my paint lies in it so i think the, the thinking there is to try and make the 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 color physical and understandable and compelling so you feel you understand it with your body because I don't use colour to depict something. It's not. I don't use blue to, because I want to do the sky. I use blue because I want the blue pigment to be something tangible in terms of the yeah. art. Well, the one we're looking in terms at, of the painting. The one we're looking at on your studio wall, the larger of the several that are hanging up. That is, what would you say? That was seven feet high, eight feet high. Probably by five. And there's, is that four layers? There were two, there's a canvas, which is like a loop, which is held open by an aluminium rail. And that hangs down and it holds it, the, the body of the painting is open. It's a rectangle, so it's conventional. And there's, and there's two loops of canvas inside, one inside the other. Inside, inside that, which you see through this great big hole in the front, is another canvas hanging inside it. So you've got a body, open body, but inside that open body are bits of painting that reveal themselves, they're exposed. And there's a beautiful little quote that I think, I'm, I'm quite sure it's what you said, that you wanted to slow down the viewing process. I've always said that, but this is something that a few people, of course, lots of artists have said it. And it's so true. You, you do, you, you look at it as a sculpture, but see it as a painting. It's... But what I would say is... You don't need to use the word look, you can use the word feel. Yeah. Because the eye is part of this range of ways we have to understand the world. The problem we have, I think, and the reason why I try to make the work I make, is because I think there's too much emphasis on images. 
Would you allow the viewer to touch it? No. Because that's the first thing I asked when I come in. I know, but you're... Although I did ask permission. I, you, I, yeah, and I said, yeah. Than, yeah, well, that's a special occasion. Yeah, well, I, I, I a, wanted to feel what... The, I knew what the fibre was. Yeah. And I just wanted to feel how it... I suppose I could have done any of the... the but see, now I can ask you a question, actually, and that is, by feeling it, what does it tell you? It reassured me that it was the cloth that I thought it was. I, I didn't think it was a normal canvas. I thought it was... It's, it's, it reminded me of... My granddad used to have a, a sack. He was in the Navy, and he had an old naval... I don't know what they used to call it, a long, thin... Like duffel bag or something. Yeah, and it just reminded me of that. And that's why I said, can I touch it? Because I, And I wanted to see if... It, and it was the same feel. Well, it probably is that. Because probably what... You know, canvas isn't made always for painters. It's made for other uses, <laughs> more than anything. But you, you wouldn't get a canvas that thick for a painter to paint on, would you? Yeah, you would. That's you would. 15 ounce. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, is that just the, me- the medium that you've put yes. on it has made it that tough? Uh, well, the, the the pigment and the rubber skin glue the gives, it, gives it this quality. And that quality is, is the quality of the colour, the pigment. Yeah. And this, you know, th- this is uh, ochre. So it's an earth colour. And I think if you stand in front of something which has certain qualities, you begin to under- you begin to relate to them. So to make a painting using earth pigments introduces you maybe quietly and slowly into the idea that actually this has something to do with uh, material world, the landscape, and how we think about and relate and respond to the landscape and painting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm about to sort of jump over a, f- a few years or back a few years, but when you referred to one of them as a landscape, and that was when you was... You, oh, sorry, rather, you... you, you you described it as a landscape painting yeah. because you was taking the canvas out into the into into a small parked area and yeah. you'd put it over a wall yeah. and you was following the form of the brickwork. That was in Streatham. Oh, is that where it was? Yeah, that was Streatham. And yeah, you you and some um, some other guys were, were following the form. Uh, some assistants, some students from Wimbledon. Right, um, you you was following the, the, the form of the brickwork of, yeah. of even of the pavement. Well, what I was trying to do is. Uh, trying to make a work that related to London, so the city that I come from. I want to make work about it, but I don't want to just paint it. I don't want to paint it in a traditional way. I don't want to paint the buildings. I want to find a new way of making work about the city. So what I was doing was we were taking canvases out, and we, I kind of think of them as contact paintings. Mm. So they're made in contact with the actual environment the hard surfaces it of the city it reminds me straight away of a rubbing when you used to do the rubbing of the the brass rubbings has something to do with that in the sense that it's contact so your actual bit of work comes from it's it's connection with actual things not an image based connection with it so that was always what really interested me that how can you make work about Things that have been so depicted have been, you know, been people have worked with that subject so many times. If you want to have a go at it, you need to try and find another way of doing it. So that's always been a challenge. So, what artists, if you were to be put into a, a bracket with other artists of, of a similar ilk, mm. who would come up on that search if it was a web search for your type of work? Difficult, difficult to answer. I mean, there are people who 
work with landscape, but in such a different way. But it's still being concerned with how we relate to the landscape. Mm. So, I don't know, what can I say? Okay, I've done a lot of work with archaeology, a lot of work with archaeologists. And within the world of archaeology, they mention people like Richard Long, who's worked with land, and sometimes they mention me. So that's, to me, something uh, that means a lot. Mm. To be put in you know, a kind of context of people who clearly understand art making in terms of landscape, but in a new way, not with the tradition in this country. You mentioned there about the work of the archaeologists. That is the Sexbury project yeah, yeah. in Oxfordshire. Yeah. Um, that really is a fascinating. Was it? Was it them who did they start the project in 1996, or was you that you alongside them? I well, no, they'd been working uh, excavating on the hill forts or the ridgeway. It's a really historical part of the country. You know. So much Iron Age and Bronze Age, real amazing history. Yeah. They've been working there for a while. And that, that site had been excavated a century or so before as well. They, right, they excavated uh, at Offington Castle, which is the White Horse. So this yeah. is, the, I think, the iconic image of British land-based art. And strangely, there's just a road going more or less through the centre. There's the Ridgeway. Yeah. Right, the Ridgeway is this ancient track where actually oh, it originally it was created by animals who would move across the land oh, on the high, okay. high ground yeah, yeah. to avoid getting in the sticky valleys or in, in the water. They would move across. And then, from what I understand, you know, early uh, ancestors would follow that it. route. The animals already decided this was the best route. Yeah. Right, then we followed. Perfect. And if you can go there now, you can still do it. And you walk past this, you walked in an ancient landscape with hill forts and barrows and burial sites so they were really fascinating it and you was invited along as a like an artist in residence yeah i got invited by someone called paul bonaventure i worked in oxford and he wanted to put artists with people who work in different disciplines and so it was experimental so you take this london painter from the east end from limehouse and you put them with archaeologists from oxford in this Had you unbelievable that, landscape. Sort of in that field before? No. I don't mean that actual field. <laughs> but I mean, Not that field, no. Not that actual one. I mean, yeah. With archaeology, so... No, at all. And in fact, it was scary because I'd sort of set, established myself as a painter from, you know, an urban painter from the East End. Yeah. Right. So Paul thought what the idea would be take this person from the East End and put them in this kind of paradigm of English landscape yeah, yeah. historical English landscape with archaeologists uh, and it was really it was really challenging because I couldn't make my painting you can't just take your studio based practice and, and put it in a field was it doesn't work the first work. few days frustrating first yeah weeks was frustrating wow. yeah you have an expectation that you're going to come up with something and then you suddenly have to realise you need to absorb many things about the place and I, new ideas and, and experience the place before... And change your mindset, adjust with the environment you're in. Be changed by it. Yeah. You can't suddenly say to yourself, right, I've got changed because it doesn't work like that. You, you need to absorb mm. and then you have something to work with. If you're, if you're genuine, it's not something that happens overnight. Yeah. So that's frustrating. Yeah. Especially if you're art world because you kind of... The demand is, where's, where's the work, where's the work... 
You're not really allowed to sort of go off and contemplate and absorb. Although that's what I tried to do. <laughs> well, I saw that on there you was laying your campuses on the floor. Was you, and it was only a photograph I saw. Was you doing the same there as what you'd done with the brickwork? You was following... Well, you probably thought that image you would have seen was probably something more recent because I've worked with archaeologists probably 20 years now and I've got a great relationship and I get invited to uh, digs and uh, I'm just accepted as part of the team, although I'm not actually digging. Yeah. Uh, and it's really fantastic access to landscape, to ideas about landscape from people who are really advanced. And it really makes me think about one of the traditions in British art, but in a completely different way. Mm. Completely different. So that image that you saw was probably from a recent dig in North Wales. Got you. Yeah, there was, you had yeah. four or five different... You was in, in a dip. Yeah. And you had four or five canvases. Yeah. And it looked like you was, again, following the form of the, of the land. What I do is I take the canvas, and because I have this relationship now, once they've excavated the trench, so, you know, the actual excavations, once they've finished... I get my canvas and I light on the surface and I can feel, again, it's a contact. It's a contact with, with something. I feel uh, with my hand and anything, any kind of interference that's coming from the land in forms of a mark or an obstruction, I draw around it and then I cut. Yeah, so I pierce yeah. the canvas and it is a response to the actual physical contact with landscape. Uh, but of course, the final result is not an image of landscape or even a reference to archaeology, the most important thing is it's about the impact of landscape and the thoughts and thinking uh, that come from archaeology. It's about the impact of that on painting. Do the archaeologists see your finished work as a collaboration with them? It's always interesting to understand the way that relationship works. They think very different Yeah, an archaeologist is not... An artist and an artist is not an archaeologist. No. I've always tried to keep that separate because I mean, often there's lots of times when I go on site and they go, Oh, come on, Simon, take the trowel, just try a bit. And I refuse, not because I'm lazy, I don't want to get on my knees, but because the minute I hold that thing in my hand, I become an archaeologist. You've crossed over, yeah. I've crossed the line and I'm not an artist. So I, I know what my role is. I'm careful not to blur it too much. And I do realize also that. What I learn, most importantly, it's about the impact of something on art. Because, of course, I make paintings, I'm an artist. I'm not leaning into archaeology too much, yeah. but, it's, but the, it's the impact that really matters. Saying about that, the, the impact, you done a, a cast of an excavated trench. Is it correct? It is from the Alfred's Castle. Yeah. And how big was that? I, I couldn't get a scale. That was an enormous project, was. actually. <laughs> Because it, it reminded me of um, when the forensic might take a, a plaster impression of a, a footprint or a yeah. you know a shoe print, but on a massive scale. It was on a uh, yeah, it was big scale. It was uh, at a place called Alfred's Castle. That's a hill fort on the Ridgeway. Again, one of these hill, Iron Age hill forts, which is of course it has this circularity, which is the form we associate with prehistory. So before the Romans arrived in this country. Uh, the, the most kind of characteristic form is this circularity. You find it in art, you find it in the holes in the ground, you find it in the hill forts. Uh, but this particular hill fort had in the centre of it a Roman villa. And so oh, wow. as they excavated, you saw 
geometry. Nice. The line. Yeah. Right angles. So in terms of looking at this uh, site, in terms of form, of course, all artists were interested in form. It had this amazing uh, juxtaposition of Roman form, which is what we are familiar with. Mm. And then the earlier form is circularity. Yeah. So that's the character of the of that hill fort. And the work I made was uh, pouring plaster onto an excavated ditch with uh, someone I know called Kabir Hussein, who works at AB Foundry in the East End. He's an expert with plaster. Mm. So we, we worked on that for, it must have been, a month. And the idea was to pour the plaster onto the chalk surface, not to cast it, but to lift the skin of the landscape. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the idea. So the plaster is very similar to chalk and it would grab the actual surface of the landscape. So when we lifted these panels, uh, what was revealed was the underside of the top layer of landscape, Mm. the chalk. So that's what the work really was about. Trying to present an actual bit of landscape and put it into a context with the white paintings I was making at the same time. And it was given a great reference, wasn't it, of a, it looked like a sleeping dragon. Yeah, that was a newspaper thing. Oh, I, thought, yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. To that was Tracy Chevalier, it, the author, it, actually. It was in, where was it, Dover Castle, and also, I did make a note of it, but I can't remember where I put it. Story, Story Gallery. Gallery. Lancaster. Uh, Dover Castle was absolutely amazing because it's an English heritage uh, site. It's an old barracks on Dover Castle. Yeah. And the interior of the this is a very big space. The interior was completely stripped back to brick. All the staircases had gone, so you would see uh, the evidence of where they used to be in yeah. the walls. Bits of plaster was left in some places. It was so raw. Wow. And that was absolutely the perfect environment for understanding materiality. Yeah, It's raw and you... You kind of uh, you respond to to the material side of things. And how big was the positive ditch? Yeah, well, trench? the actual work, yeah, the actual I call it trench ten. The actual artwork was twenty yeah. meters long and about two and a half meters high, so that's over seventy foot. How many pieces was that in? It was in those sections. Uh, it was really heavy. <laughs> it was really heavy. But what was really nice is we tipped it ninety degrees, so you would be presented with actual landscape in the way that you normally encounter a painting yeah. so it's at 90 degrees to you yeah, so yeah. I was trying to equate yeah. how we respond to paintings with an idea of how to respond to landscape mm. and the way they interconnect life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if AI could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I was trying to sort of figure a way to bring it round into the, a, a question. Yeah, go on. Which was, it, we sort of nearly got on it uh, a short while ago. When was your first interest in art? Can you remember? As a kid. As a kid growing up in West London, where I grew up. And I just drew all the time. It was my world. Do you remember what artist stood out to you at Didn't the time? know any artists. Didn't know. When I was a bit older, I suppose, I mean, people like Van Gogh, of course, you'd, you'd come across Picasso. My grandmother had a Picasso book that I just used to study it. <laughs> and in fact, it was a, he hadn't died yet. And when he died, I wrote at the end of the book, I tried to imitate the text saying Picasso died peacefully in his bed. <laughs> and I was probably about, I don't know, I wasn't how old I was, wasn't even 10. So I used to really scrutinise things like that. And they were special. Uh, but, you know, family, the idea of being an artist wasn't something you contemplated. It wasn't even an idea. I didn't even know any artists. Yeah. Yeah, I know that, that kind of thing came later. Also, you know, my family, they wanted me to get a proper job, not do something ridiculous. <laughs> that, are they yeah. still of that opinion? <laughs> I think they haven't lost that one yet. They got used to it now. They got used to it, but probably still don't completely agree, aren't they? So, did you want to be an artist when you was at school, going into college? I think I probably was doing that more than anything else, and better at that, but no, it was not taken seriously, it was my thing. Yeah. It was my thing. What were you doing at that time, when you was a, a mid to late teen? What kind of things I was making, I was doing drawing, I did architectural drawing, uh, but then I was taken, my family, we left London, we left the UK, and we went to Athens. And that was absolutely mind blowing because I was fifteen, and suddenly, suddenly, the world just opened. Oh, it did. Opened. Oh, I thought thought we'd have gone the other way because of the. I used to get on a bus. We used to go international school. I get on the bus every day. I went underneath the Parthenon, so I'd see it twice a day on the bus. So it's part of normal life. And why, why was that? Was was it parents working? Yeah, my dad worked for American Television, and it was there was a war in the Lebanon in Beirut, and all the press got moved out of the uh, Middle East, and they all went to either Cyprus or Athens. Wow! And we came from London to be part of a, my dad, be part of the team in Athens, and there's some lot of stuff going on. Iranian Revolution. You know, he was in Tehran constantly. We were there for two and a half years. Wow. But right age for me, because I went when I was 15. So kind of like you wake up as a person at that age. So it's right at a vital time of leaving leaving school and yeah. starting Yeah, I did college. my A-levels there. It was so hot and I was, was trying to hold British the pen. Was American International. School? Oh. So there's everyone. And there's a lot of Lebanese because of the problem with Beirut. Yeah. Greek, a lot of Greeks, quite a few Americans, some Brits. And we used to go around. Do you ever go back? I try to. I love the place, actually. I feel sorry for what's happened in Greece. Yeah. But what it did, uh, what it made me feel was what being a European means. And certainly in terms of art, that's been one of the most valuable things for me because I've, I'm sympathetic to what's happened uh, art-wise in Europe and I, the history is fascinating. Mm. And I want to... My kind of connection is with the whole of European art, not just Britishness, but Europeanness. Mm. So what's happening at the moment is bloody calamity, I think, the Brexit stuff. 
Did you start college or did you go to college? Well, when I left school, so I was 17, came back to London, got a job as a runner for a film company in the West End. Via your dad or? Yeah, through someone. That yeah. He told me to go and see so-and-so. One thing led to another. Ended up, it's just you know, a runner's job. So, And going to all the film places in Soho, get all the rushes, take them into the office, make coffee all day for people, get sent out every five minutes. Uh, I got to know my way around the West End. And that's another but, industry that's leaving. Yeah. Leaving that area yeah. as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, sorry, go on. So I knew every little street in Soho, all the back streets, all, all the little cut-throughs, the whole thing. I was asking them, because they did a lot of animation, and I could draw, and I would say to the, to the team who were drawing, oh, let me do some. And they would let me, and then they said, actually, well, we can't give you a job because <laughs> we're doing it. Yeah. So go to college, get training, and then when you come back, we'll find something for you. Nice. So I went off to college within... Within Excuse one me. month, uh, I had come across this thing called fine art, and I jumped shit. Oh, wow. I didn't do graphics. That was the end of that. Uh, I went into fine art, and, well, of course, like, my family weren't happy, but that was it. That was the beginning of it. I didn't really know it existed until I went to college. I didn't know you could be an artist. Yeah. How did your work change as soon as you got, or as soon as you started fine art? Could you notice a, a difference? It's all about the way you... It's your attitude yeah. that changes. Yeah. Uh, the way that people used to talk, I had a really great foundation course teacher and uh, he would talk about things in such a way that made it intriguing and mysterious, but I couldn't understand it. It's, yeah. it was a new world, new a new language. language. Yeah. But I really, it's just so enticing and I was trying to find my way to understand these things. This, this door needs to open somehow. Mm. So... I just really, really, uh, you know, completely threw myself into it. It just seemed to be offering such a lot, uh, you know, in terms of a kind of freedom to develop your thinking, a freedom to develop a way of, of working, a freedom to do something that you think is meaningful with your time. Can you remember the first piece of work that you'd done which really fitted the brief that you'd set yourself? When you sort of, I mean, I, I only ask this question because I can remember it when I was at university and I had this idea of sort of making this, this bunk bed with brickwork underneath that was supposed to be a cell within a cell sort of thing, you know, how people lock themselves away with yep. depression, that in prison. Okay. And that's what I thought of doing. And, and when I made it, it just really fitted the brief. Right. And, and that's the only reason I ask this question because yeah. I just wonder if, I presume most artists have had, can remember their first one. Possibly. I can, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't at college. Uh, it was probably when I was about 27. And uh, was you working from, was you an artist from when you left university? I think, well, I, you know, when you leave college and you go down the pub and you meet people and they say, what do you do? You have to be brave to say you're an artist. Yeah. You have to be convinced. And part of becoming an artist is being strong enough to, say, to tell someone you're an artist. Carry it with Because immediately they're going to say, what do you do then, mate? And, you, know, you know, this kind of stuff. And... That's not proper art. All this kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've got to be able to fight that because actually it's really hurtful. Yeah. Because people do criticise and they think it's like, know, it's like football. You know, the kind of criticism that you get can be really damaging. Yeah. And for some reason, it's like, I think, there are certain things that are really open for criticism. Well, art's one of them, sport's the other. I mean, if you're a lawyer, you don't get criticised no, no. for what you're doing. Yeah. 
you know, if you're a carpenter, you don't get criticised, or anything. If you make websites, people understand it. Yeah. Other things seem to be open. So you need to be tough. And part of that toughness is learning to say, I'm an artist, to someone you never met, mm. because it's a big claim. And for, for me personally, when I do that, especially speaking how I do, I find that quite a big leap as well. No, but you might find that uh, Turner spoke the way you do. Yeah, very probably. He was a proper Londoner. That makes me feel a bit better. And so, you're in good do company. You, do, you, <laughs> do you remember what the piece of work was that... It was a white painting that I painted in my flat in Limehouse. And it took me ages. And I came in one night and I punched it. I punched it hard enough to cut all my knuckles so it's canvas. And it was uh, really important because it brought me from always going to something to actually being somewhere that I felt I had achieved something that I understood. So it's monochromatic, but it related to what I was seeing, but everything was translated into something that stood for itself. Mm. It wasn't a depiction, it stood for itself. And that was the big, big Was that a turning point which made you come down this... You was obviously on that line anyway. Do you think that was a turning point for your mind to see where... I think it made me realise that things that you are trying to understand, sometimes you make this step where you actually understand what it is you're trying to do but you have to make work to understand what you need to make mm. I'm not the kind of artist who has an idea and then carries it out literally uh, it's not a product of an idea they are the result of a process which is to do with thinking about things and how you make things so your so next painting is only the, the process of what you've learned from the previous one and learning what to value and what to bring with you and what to give the elbow to mm. Because some things you have to drop. I mean, I do a little bit of teaching, and one of the things that I find with lots of students is they think, or they're led to believe, that if you make your work complex, it is better. Well, actually, if something... The complexity should be in the mind of the viewer. It's the viewer's experience that's complex. But for the artist, it has to be manageable, possible. It needs to be something that you put one thing and another thing together, and it makes a third. Yeah. So, well, like this piece we're looking at here on the yeah. wall, which is, again, it's multi-layered, physically yeah, multi-layered. Yeah. And you do naturally just look into it, look around it, look yeah. through it. Because it's, it is very inviting. It does make you want to well, do a bit more that's work. Intentional. In front that's, of you. that's intentional. That's intentional. Of course. That's, you know, this idea that... The idea of, we have about painting is something that you stand and look at. You're static and you absorb information from a painting, we kind of think that painting does that. I'm trying to make the experience of a painting something active, so you move, and, and you're encouraged to move. And to be fair, you have got quite... With, with a lot of viewers, you will have a hurdle to cross anyway, because you've got to try and bring them into your world. They're looking at a painting that isn't yeah. a traditional painting, so yeah. you've got to make them enter your world, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know it's difficult because I'm trying to do something new with painting. I'm trying to find a new role for painting. I want mm. it to do different jobs. I want it to com- communicate physically as well as visually. So, of course, as you do that, you start leaving behind all the, the conventions. In fact, every convention of painting, I try to find a physical manifestation of it. Mm. So instead of making a line with a pencil or with a brush, I make it with a pair of scissors. Well, crudely explaining this for people who obviously can't see it, it, it would 
if you could imagine it sort of a canvas hanging over a, I was going to say a washing line, but that's a, it's, you explain on, it first and then I'll explain it afterwards. Well, well your side, your front onto the canvas, which yeah. is hanging in a loop. Yeah. But then next to it, you've got some other smaller canvases yeah. that are 90 degrees from there. So you're looking at them from a side. Yeah. The one I'm looking at at the moment is two small, uh, four sm- uh, small loops of canvas, two being maybe 14 inches, the others being maybe 18 inches yeah. in depth. Yeah. So there's a step. Yeah. So, again, you, it, that's making you look into and through the canvas, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So how would you explain the difference between the What two? I'm trying to do, I think, all this stuff of working with landscape and working with archaeology has made me think of the material world. It's made me sensitive to the material world. And... Possibly, it's made me think that we can only go so far with images. And if we have, if we want to go further, we need to make things that are not just visual, but also uh, material and things that you respond to with all your senses. Mm. So I take the idea of a painting, and instead of just thinking of a painting being the picture, I think of it of the painting as canvas, wood, staples, pigment, size. I break it down into its material Uh, elements I then reconstruct a painting with a real interest in the painting having a physical body so an interior like ours so when we stand up to it next to it and confront it there's a relationship it's spatial and physical and material Uh, so you know the, the idea of these two works together the little one he just described is something I started working on yesterday it's probably not completely I mean I they know. are only together because they're together, they're together. yeah they're, it's they're not, not a show is it yeah no that's what I'm saying yeah uh, so what I do with these small ones which I call wall spines they are wall spines wall spine I call good. it yeah good one. so if you imagine you know let's think of a painting being a stretcher with canvas stretched over it it does have a physical depth and it is rectangular now you move the wood and you construct again the rectangle using only canvas you then have a hollow interior mm. space, which I turn 90 degrees. It uses some weight to make its form, isn't it? Yeah, but I argue that it, this is, on some levels, very conventional in terms of what a painting should be, but on its material terms, not its image-based terms. Mm, of course. And then, you know, the pigment is all really important because different pigment we respond to, different colour we respond to in different ways. Do you remember what piece you created that... Or, or rather, what piece would you hold most dear that you created? I know it's all part of a process yeah. from yeah. from the day, more or less, you punched it to yeah. today. Yeah. I know, I shouldn't have punched it. Funny enough, the ones but if that you didn't, you, maybe you wouldn't be know. where I mean, you are today. The funny, I, can't, I don't want to keep everything because uh, I make work all the time and I would just be buried under my own work. So it's got to find... They have to find their place in the world. But is there one that sort of holds dear to? I'm trying to think. There's worse from certain periods because either I associate associate them with achieving something and moving it forward, yeah. or they remind me of certain moments in my life. Yeah. I mean, that white painting that I made in Limehouse reminds me of certain points in my life, and it reminds me of making a big step in art on my own terms. My own achievement. Yeah, so it's got its own significance. Yeah, but also it's really, I quite enjoy the work itself. It's really luminous and after all these years it's still 
is still uh, something that rewards looking and being around. Hmm. And I, I know your work, as we were just saying, that it does lead on the first from the last. Where would you go for inspiration or to sit and think about your work other than your studio? Well, because I live in the East End, I go down the river. Uh, something about water that just transforms your mood. And also, that being a Londoner, that has a meaning for me. Where is it? You said it's still in Limehouse? Limehouse. And where is it you go? The river or the canal down? I go to the river. There's a little gate in amongst all these great big apartments that they built on the river that most people don't know. And the, the, the actual gate opens the wrong way. It opens was it outwards. Was it No, onto the river. Oh, river proper. Wow. Yeah. And there's a little gate, you walk down, and <clears throat> when it's low tide, it's fa- fantastic. We just go down it's onto fantastic. the beach. Or just I just go with my kids side. as well. Every t- we go down there and we just start picking around, but it's not a question of inspiration. It's where you go to get an opportunity just to be quiet yeah. and not deal with all the crap that you have to deal with all the time. Uh, so it is actually, in London, in terms of London, it is the river that's, yeah, that's special. Do you think you could work on the riverbank there? as a landscape as you have with these or have you or I've done something recently in Perfleet underneath Dartford Bridge I did oh, printing wow. did a printing project with a printer called Mike Ward we had to walk you walk about two miles past those industrial sites then you can get literally underneath Dartford Bridge wow so we were making prints off the surfaces the concrete surfaces that kind of transform into Use something using proper printing, the whole proper process. Uh, This is about two months ago in May, and it was uh, was about 30 degrees. It's amazing weather, (laughs) surrounded by all this crap and everything that gets washed up by the river and everything. There's just so much stuff. But again, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal place. Just literally under the bridge. So you can hear the the lorries. They go across all day. And that's, that's quite a way up as well, isn't it? There's a, a friend, Nicola White. She's a mudlark. Uh, she makes art and, and, and works with art as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if you know the river, what the river does, it carries things. Moves and it carries, and But it carries stuff of a particular weight to certain places. So if you really know, if you want metal, you know where to go. Yeah. If you want ceramic, you know where to go. You know, if you, Limehouse is a good spot for bodies. Apparently they all come up there. <laughs> You're not found any yourself. They pop up there if you fall in a river in Richmond. Your ideal show, your ideal exhibition, you and <clears throat> five other artists, who would it be? Or even who are your five favourite artists, past and present? I don't think I would do a kind of favourite. I think what I would try to do is something about trying to not give yourself a context by showing your work next to Rembrandt or Cezanne yeah. or, you know, or Titian or whatever, but more... Maybe doing something, maybe five works from the year you're born. So to look at European painting oh, in the yeah. year you're born and to see what the environment was like when that you came into. So I don't know. Would what would be? that be? Probably tapiers, people like that. The Spanish painters who were really interested in physical physicality. I don't know what was going on in Italy. I don't know, maybe some Italian painting from the 60s, maybe some German painting. Finally. And Americans, I suppose. If you wasn't an artist, mm. what would you want to be? Or what would you be? I keep changing my mind about that. If I had to stop, if someone said, if you 
you're not allowed to make art. If someone said that, and I had to find the second best. At one point I thought photography. And then I kind of grew out of that. And now I think geology. It's really you know, working with the actual physical physical reality of the world and, and being outside. Would that be because of working with the archaeologists for so long? I know it's a different field, but... I think that kind of understanding of what an alternative that would be satisfying could be, of course it's come from what they taught me. Mm. And then, you know, geology. As long as you're not working for an oil company, but <laughs> you're doing something else with it, it might be yeah. nice. And where can people find you? Website, social media, etc. I've got to do that this winter. Um, I'm so damn busy sometimes. Um, Making the work so demanding. I go home and I've got things to write in the evening. You've got family. You've got your real life. and You've got your kind of family life and you've got your art life. And are you re- uh, represented by Fold Gallery? Yeah. Or do they... Yeah, are, represented. So, so they could see... Go and see your work via yeah. Fold Gallery's yeah. websites. yeah. yeah. I mean, if you put my name in, lots of things come up. It's just not being controlled by me. Well, I'd recommend putting your name in along with the Segsbury projects because that is okay. something very special. Yeah, thanks, Gary. There we go. Simon Callery. And as he said there, he doesn't do social media and his website is under construction at the moment. So if you do have any questions for him or you want to contact him, you can do so via Fold Gallery. And talking of the Fold Gallery... At the end there, we did forget to talk about Simon's recent show at Fold Gallery called Yellow. It was a joint show um, with Simon and, please excuse my pronunciation of this, but I think it is Torney Wilker, the Danish sculptor. But their joint show at the Fold Gallery, which was in, I think it finished in January this year. It was a great show with both of the artists using yellow as the primary colour of their work. Simon's soft sculptural paintings hanging from the wall and Tawny's almost furniture-like sculptures being on the floor. We didn't talk about yellow during the podcast and I don't know how it came about, but it was a great pairing. It was a really interesting show because although both Tawny's work and Simon's work dominated and commanded the space that they were in, they didn't seem to interrupt each other's work, you know? And better than me trying to explain it, go and have a look online. Simon Callery, Tawny Wilker, Yellow Fold Gallery. Next week, I'll be taking you into the studio of Alice Maha. Me and my family were travelling up the beautiful west coast of Ireland from Baltimore down in West Cork up to Westport. And knowing I was going to be in Westport for a few days, I contacted Alice and asked her if she'd be kind enough to give me an hour or so to record a podcast. I'd seen a few of Alice's um, sculptures and installations in the past, and, well, they're stunning, that's why I got in touch with her. And we talk about them in this podcast, obviously. After I set up this equipment, Alice went out to grab herself a coffee, but just before doing so, she queued up a video for me to watch. Just a four or five minute video, which her and her friends made in response to the referendum to repeal the 8th. And honestly, it had such an impact on me immediately. It was one of those pieces that you can't stop thinking about. I fired it out to a few of my friends when I got back. And I reckon I watched it three or four times every week since. And if you've got a few minutes, pop over to the video site Vimeo. V-I-M-E-O. 
and search for Ishka Films, I-S-H-K-A Films, title being Artist Campaign to Repeal the Eighth Amendment. It's well worth a watch in preparation for next week's podcast. And just before I go, I once again want to mention the Kessler Trust Awards that's on at the Royal Festival Hall over on the South Bank. I know I've mentioned it a few times before, but it's an exhibition that gets put on every year to showcase the work of people mainly in prisons and secure units, although it includes people on probation and deportation units. And I know I've also mentioned um, Jeremy Della works with uh, the Kessler Trust annually and previous curators um, include no less than Sarah Lucas and last year's curator was Anthony Gormley. So please, if you're in the area of the South Bank, pop over to the Royal Festival Hall and I guarantee that you wouldn't have been to many exhibitions that have got this much power, energy and angst just oozing off of the walls. So thank you for listening. Again, if you want any more information on the Mizog Art Podcast, go to www.mizogart.com. If you want to contact me for any reason, if you want to ask anything, you can contact me via email at podcast at mizogart.com. Or likewise, social media, any other social media sites, at Mizog Art, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Thanks again for listening. Till next week. ta Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.